0: Hello and welcome to the Chair's Corner from the Department of Medicine at the University of North Carolina. This is our series where we discuss different genetic diseases with physicians who treat patients with these conditions. And today, we're going to be talking about something called the Long QT Syndrome. And we welcome Dr. Anil Gehi, who is an Associate Professor of Medicine in our Division of Cardiology. Dr. Gehi is also the Director of the Clinical Cardiac Electrophysiology Lab at UNC. So welcome, Dr. Gahey.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me. What on earth is long QT? What does that mean? So long QT syndrome is an electrical disorder of the heart. So as you know, everybody's heart has an electrical system that regulates, you know, the, the pace of the heartbeat. Um, you know, it slows down when you're resting, it speeds up when we're exercising. And there are a lot of disorders of the electrical system, and one of those disorders is called long QT syndrome, and it's characterized by a long QT interval, which is a thing that we can measure on somebody's uh, electrocardiogram, um, which is uh, basically a snapshot of somebody's electrical system. Let's
0: go back for a second. When you think of the electrical system of the heart... Mm -hmm. In so many ways, the heart's a muscle that has blood vessels that supply the muscle. And when one has a heart attack, the blood supply to that muscle gets altered or stopped. Right. In addition to those blood vessels that supply muscle, there are uh, electrical fibers that tell the heart to beat in a coordinated fashion. How do you actually view, how do you measure those electrical currents?
1: Yeah, so this is an interesting uh, problem. So there is, as you say, an electrical system to the heart that you can't see visually. Um, So if you were to take a picture of somebody's heart, um, you wouldn't be able to see anything about the electrical system. But we look at it by using an electrocardiogram. An An EKG. uh, Yeah, an EKG. and An EKG basically is a snapshot of somebody's electrical system. So what we do to do that is we put electrodes uh, on the surface of the person and measure the electrical activity um, that's happening in the heart. Um, And that's our snapshot of the electrical system.
0: You also measure an electrical system sometimes over days, not just a snapshot. You can put uh, an EKG device on somebody and have them walk around.
1: That's correct. Um, We do ambulatory monitoring. So we'll have somebody wear an EKG that they can walk around with, and we can see uh, rhythm disorders that might happen intermittently.
0: And sometimes people have very, very fast heart rates that are abnormal. And and are dangerous.
1: Exactly. And so there are m- many, many different electrical abnormalities of the heart. Uh, my whole uh, you know, career is devoted to the study of that. Long QT syndrome is one of them, and it's, uh, it's one that's particularly worrisome because it can lead to sudden death.
0: On an EKG, you're looking for certain types of waves or forms, and one of those there are various complexes that you look at. Can you just name those for us so our listeners understand?
1: Yeah, certainly. So um, the different complexes have letters associated with them. So there's the P wave, the QRS complex, the T wave. Um, and those and correlate with what those, kind? Yeah, those correlate with different phases of the electrical activity of the heart. Um, so each time the heart beats, there's electrical uh, activity that initiates that heartbeat, and that electrical activity is depicted by those different phases that we see on the EKG. The QT itself is actually the kind of resetting uh, part of that uh, electrical activity. So f- when, when uh, the electrical system says to initiate a heartbeat, there is this process of activating the my- myocardial cells or this, the heart cells. That's depicted by the QRS complex on the EKG, and then after it's activated, it needs to be reset. And that resetting process is depicted by the QT interval.
0: Which you can measure, usually with a set of calipers, although now...
1: Yeah, there's an automated read done on the EKG um, that will measure the QT interval. That's basically telling us how long it takes for that resetting to happen uh, in in the muscle cells.
0: And the resetting should happen in a predictable fashion each and every time.
1: That's right. Each time it's reset, it happens in a predictable fashion so that it's ready for the next uh, activation.
0: And if the QT interval, the reset time, in other words, gets prolonged, what
1: happens? Yeah, so there are problems uh, of the electrical system that are characterized by a prolonged QT interval. And if the QT interval is prolonged... Uh, patients can be at risk for ventricular rhythm disturbances. So that means basically an electrical disorder of the lower chambers of the heart. Um, So instead of just being reset and then activated again when your natural pacemaker says to be activated again, it can on its own go into an abnormal rhythm. Basically, the lower chambers of the heart basically go haywire for a few seconds, and they beat out of control very rapidly and that can lead to fainting spells, and it can lead to even cardiac arrest and sudden death.
0: Unfortunately, that happens in young people as well as old people, but for different reasons.
1: That's right. So long QT syndrome is one of those uh, disorders that uh, people are born with, and so it will affect young people, young adults, uh, very often. How is it inherited? So it's inherited in an autosomal dominant fashion, meaning that if someone has it there's a 50% chance of passing it on to their um to their children
0: which is really a scary thought there you are a parent and you may not even know that you have it that's right so and pass along a gene that could end up causing your child's death
1: that's right so What we do then is when we find it in somebody, the proband we say, then we will uh, make sure to screen family members for that same syndrome. Uh, We can screen by EKG um, and look for the uh, long QT. Um, And then if the the patient uh, has a genetic abnormality identified, we can actually just test for that specific genetic abnormality. And
0: what are those genetic abnormalities?
1: So there are a whole slew of them. We now have about, uh, I, th- I believe, thirteen. We're up to thirteen different genes that have been implicated with long QT syndrome. Um, there are three of them that are uh, the most common that are, account for about ninety percent of the of long QC, QT syndrome patients that we've identified. And then there are a whole host of mutations in those genes that What are are those genes? uh, So they basically are uh, the genes that are responsible for the creation of ion channels. Um, So the ion channels are those channels on the muscle cells that allow for the flow of ions in and out of cells and basically create the electrical activity. Um, and so if there are um, mutations in the genes responsible for the creation of those ion channels, then you could end up with the long QT syndrome.
0: If you suspect then a patient having uh, a long QT syndrome, do you how do you test people? Do you test them with EKGs? Do you test them now with these genetic tests? Do you do
1: both? We do both. So generally what we'll do is we'll be suspicious of long QT. Um, if somebody, first of all, has a long QT on their EKG, and particularly if they have uh, uh, symptoms associated with long QT syndrome, such as fainting spells, or if they were to have had a cardiac arrest and have been resuscitated, then we will be suspicious of it, and uh, we will give them the diagnosis if they have uh, some of the features. So the length of their QT is part of the diagnosis. The symptoms is part of the diagnosis. If they have a family history, that's also part of the diagnosis. Um, And then we can further uh, classify the type of long QT syndrome that they have by doing genetic testing.
0: There are different kinds of long QT syndrome, and they have numbers associated with them.
1: That's right. That's right. So Tell us there a little are, bit about those, yeah. Yeah. So there are there are um you know about thirteen of them now that have been described, but the most common ones are the type one, type two, type three. And it's quite interesting in that they have very specific clinical manifestations. So for example, type one, which is the most common one, has uh the manifestation of having events during exercise. And the classic one is swimming. Uh mm-hmm. so Um, You hear about a person who has a near-drowning episode or a person who faints while exercising. That's a big red flag for us, and one of the things we look for is long QT type 1. And, um, you know, their QT interval actually will lengthen as they exercise, and then they're prone to having these uh, ventricular arrhythmic events during exercise. Why swimming? I don't know why swimming. It's very interesting. Um, but that's been the, the one that's the characteristic uh, type of exercise. And so um, type 2? So type 2 also can happen during exercise, but less likely. And it's more common to happen during emotional stimuli. Hmm. Again, I don't understand exactly why that is. The classic is a, is a sudden auditory stimulus, like an alarm clock. Hmm. Um, so they, an alarm clock goes off, and suddenly they have an episode. Um, And so one of the things we tell people with long QT type 2 is get rid of your alarm clocks. That's
0: wonderful. You can sleep in.
1: That's right. (laughs) And and then the type 3, which is the third of the most common ones, is the one that's most lethal because events happen during sleep. Um, And so they just don't wake up. So we don't know about the patient, and then they uh, have an episode uh, during sleep. Mm. That's one of the more lethal ones, and that's why that actually is one of the features of being high-risk. So if somebody has long QT type 3, we consider them at a higher risk.
0: One other question about the different types. Do you pass along exactly that type from generation to generation? Yeah, basically. It's a different mutation.
1: It's the same. um, So so once you have a mutation identified, there's a 50% chance that you'll pass that same one on to to your child.
0: There are non-inherited forms of long QT. There are many types of drugs or pharmaceutical agents that also can prolong uh, the QT interval. That's common drugs, actually.
1: That's correct. So we we actually divide long QT syndrome into what we call inherited long QT syndrome and acquired long QT syndrome. And the acquired long QT syndrome is really uh, mostly due to those medications that can cause uh, QT prolongation. There are many, for example, antibiotics, uh, anti-seizure medicines, for example, that can cause your QT to lengthen a whole host of medications and um, can can cause acquired long QT syndrome. Also, electrolyte abnormalities, so patients who are, for example, depleted with potassium or magnesium can have a lengthening of their QT. So, we put those into a group of, of patients that have acquired long QT, and that's important to distinguish because those are potentially treatable um, and not something that uh, are, are necessarily going to be passed on to their children.
0: Eat your fruits, and vegetables, and almonds for your magnesium, that's at right. least <laughs> to get rid of some of those electrolyte that's right. d- that's disorders. That's right. If it's an acquired uh, process, mm-hmm. uh, that's really treatable by getting rid of the underlying disorder, underlying medication, underlying electrolyte disorder. That's relatively easier, I suppose. Generally.
1: I mean, I will say that there is probably a little bit of overlap. Um, So for example, there are patients who may take a medication that lengthens their QT, but they may in fact have a kind of milder form of inherited long QT underlying, and it kind of was unmasked by the drug. So there may be some overlap. But for the most part, yes, if somebody has what we would consider acquired long QT, you stop the medication correct the electrolyte abnormalities, and then they usually won't have to deal with any consequences.
0: How do you treat inherited forms of long QT?
1: So, um, the treatment depends on the severity. Um, so, what we'll do initially when we have a patient with suspected long QT syndrome is we will um, risk stratify them. So. And that risk stratification is based on, for example, how long their QT interval is. So, for example, if somebody's QT interval is very, very long, they have a higher risk of... How long? So, you know, a a, a long QT is, by definition, more than 460 or so. Women actually have a little bit longer QT than men, so our our cutoffs are a little higher in women. Um, But if it's above 460, that's considered long. And then it's very long when it's above 500. Um, So if somebody has a very long QT, they are at a higher risk of events. Um, If somebody's had a prior event, so a fainting spell, for example, or a a, a resuscitated cardiac arrest, they're at a very high risk. And so we'll go through this process of risk stratifying them. Um, The genetic testing can also be part of that. For example, certain genetic abnormalities or certain genes that are affected are higher risk than others. And once we've gone through that risk stratification, that'll help determine what the therapies are. And those therapies could be something as simple as, oh, this is mild, you just need to avoid taking medications that prolong the QT. Or if it's a higher risk, sometimes we'll treat patients with a beta blocker medication that can help uh, prevent episodes of fainting and cardiac arrest. And then the most severe ones, for example, the people who have had a cardiac arrest and survived, or they have a very long QT and maybe have one of the um, uh, worsened uh, genetic uh, mutations will end up needing a defibrillator. Um, the defibrillator is the device that will protect them from a cardiac arrest.
0: And it's implanted in the chest with wires or leaves right. that go right into the heart.
1: That's right. It's basically a, like what we call it a paramedic in your chest. It kind of watches your heart. If you have one of these bad lethal rhythms, it'll protect you and resuscitate you.
0: Uh, For the most part, people with long QT syndrome, if they actually understand what's wrong, we'd be willing to have a defibrillator.
1: That's right. So if if you have a severe abnormality and you've, for example, been resuscitated from a cardiac arrest, then we would say you are at a high risk of this happening again. We would recommend a defibrillator, and most patients would be willing to do that.
0: If you have a family member who has not had a cardiac arrest and by the screening process that you've done, discover that another sibling, for example, has a very long QT, which you suggest that they get a defibrillator? That's
1: a tough question. So it's pretty rare that we'll put a defibrillator in in a patient who has never had a symptom. One thing to kind of take a step back and explain is that even though it is inherited um, and there's a you know fifty percent chance of uh, getting a, getting the problem, uh, if your f- family member has it or if your parent has it, um, there is what we would say variable penetrance, meaning that you could get the genetic abnormality, but it not be as severe. Um, and so we'll always look for the genetic abnormality, but correlate that with symptoms um, and clinical manifestations. So if a patient has the clinical manifestation and they are high risk, then yes, sometimes we will put a defibrillator in, But most of the time, we'll use the defibrillator only in those patients who've had symptoms.
0: There are risks of having a a defibrillator.
1: Absolutely. You know, having a a device implanted in your chest for a long time has its risks. Um, And when we're talking about young adults here, um, that's a long, long time to have a defibrillator. Um, Defibrillators can have problems with their leads. They will need battery changes periodically. Um, And so there's a major consequences to having defibrillators. So we only want to put them in people who absolutely need it.
0: If you have now received treatment of of any of the kinds you've described, what's the outlook of somebody with with long QT?
1: It's actually very good. You know, we have treatments for it um, that are very effective. Beta blockers, for example, are very effective medicines. um, For particular particularly for certain forms of long QT. There's the most common one, which is the long QT type 1, which is the one that's characterized by having episodes during exercise. Um, uh, That one is very, very treatable with beta blockers. And so it's actually quite rare that you need to use a defibrillator in those patients. And as long as the patient takes the beta blocker, um, then generally they could be very well protected and have a normal life.
0: Where would you tell someone who has long QT or a family member to find additional information?
1: Um, So a couple of things. Uh, So first off, somebody who has long QT, again, it's very important that they avoid QT prolonging drugs. Um, And there's a nice website called qtdrugs.org that has a running list of those medications that we always tell patients who have long QT to go um, anytime they're starting a new medication. Um, Another place they can go, there's a nice uh, organization called the uh, Sudden Arrhythmic Death Syndromes Foundation. They have a nice website, SADS.org, where there's a lot of kind of patient-appropriate information.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Gehi, for providing this really fascinating uh, discussion. Thank you. Thanks so much to our listeners for tuning in. Next time, we'll be talking with Dr. Sid Baird about hemochromatosis. You can subscribe to the Cherish Corner on iTunes, SoundCloud, or like us on Facebook. Thanks so much for listening.